Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. So Akiva, as we begin Parshat Ve'et Hanan, Moshe talks about how he's not going to be able to go into Eretz Yisrael. And he seems to blame B'nai Yisrael for that. Maybe not this iteration of B'nai Yisrael, but some iteration of B'nai Yisrael. And we are told at the same time by Chazal, by our rabbis, that he is hinting to them. He is encouraging them, perhaps, in a very slightly roundabout way, that they should pray for him to be able to go into Eretz Yisrael, because the prayers of others can sometimes be more powerful than one's own prayers. And so, what do we do with this? How do we understand him blaming, as opposed to taking responsibility for what he did? How do we understand him asking, maybe even guilting, B'nai Israel into what he wants them to do? Is this just a cranky old man, or is this something more than that? I think there are two parts here, as you've very clearly stated. There's the how do I accept responsibility for something I've done versus blaming someone else? And I suppose the additional piece with that is, is it true that sometimes when we blame someone for doing something, they did in fact do that something? And one could argue that in many ways, B'nai Yisrael did know how to push Moshe's buttons and in fact push again and again and again where he did make mistakes which, right, we know that it wasn't simply hitting the rock that is what kept him from going into Eretz Yisrael. So, with that in mind, I guess that piece of the question, if, if I can be so bold as to somewhat revise it, would be, how and when can we blame someone for something? And I think it goes back into a little bit of what we talked about last week, where we really mentioned the idea of can, how can we rebuke someone or correct someone so as to not shame them, but get them to have a positive change. And I think blaming in the same way, if, if, and blame might not be the right word in that case, but maybe it's pointing out a mistake there's a way to do that, and we learned that and talked about that last week. So I won't go over that in any more detail than that. As far as is he blaming and how does one take responsibility for their own actions, clearly that's important, right? We know that 
part of doing teshuva is taking responsibility for doing something wrong, not saying, well, you know, if you hadn't done this, then I clearly wouldn't have done this wrong. No, it's about taking ownership of what one has done. And as I always try and encourage people, whenever we talk about taking responsibility, it's not about taking the blame because that makes you just feel bad. But the fact is, is that if you can take responsibility for something that you've done, then you can have the power to change that. So, right, in this case, we're dealing with from years and years ago, but the fact remains is if we take responsibility for something we do wrong, then we have the power to control about not doing that wrong thing again. And there's value to that. And so it's not just about taking responsibility as a way to blame oneself, but it's also about taking the opportunity to control and learn and grow from that mistake so it doesn't happen again. So that's the first piece. And the second piece is, is can we successfully guilt someone into doing something for us? The short answer is yes. The long answer is, is not forever. We know that. And we see this is true in the Torah. Moshe says, will you pray for me? And at the end of the day, Moshe does not go into Eretz Yisrael. So it didn't matter. You can guilt someone into doing something for you. You can guilt a partner into staying with you. But how long are they going to really stay with you? Right? Your, your child can guilt you into not eating their vegetables because maybe you didn't give them that something earlier on in the day or you were short with them or you didn't play the game so now they can't eat their carrots. But at the end of the day, who's really losing out? Your child, because they had the necessary nutrients that they missed out on from the carrots. And sure, maybe one time of missed carrots is not a big deal, but the point is clear. If we don't eat our vegetables, it's not so good for us. So, so guilt is one of those things where you can use it on someone for a very short term and probably in many ways superficial gain. But that long term, that deep need of being fulfilled by something doesn't occur because of guilt. Right? We know that in a successful relationship, you don't stay because of guilt. You stay because of a mutual respect and admiration and love. And that's not just for a, a husband and wife. That's for any relationship. We, we, don't, we don't stay in relationships out of guilt. We stay in relationships because of the value that they provide. You might do something out of pity, which is what guilt em, uh, encourages. But it's not the same value. And so I think that probably even if Moshe had successfully guilted B'nai Yisrael into davening for him, the fact remains is, is it a genuine davening? You know, and I think when we think of those who we pray for in our kehila, for Rafua Shalema, I don't think we pray out of guilt. We pray out of a genuine desire for that person to have a Rafua Shalema. And uh, if I can be so bold that hopefully those who are in need of a Rafua Shalema and those who need davening for them will get that what they need, not out of guilt but out of a genuine desire for that person to recover. Amen.
Avi, in this week's Parsha, we have uh, the Shema and the first paragraph of the Shema. And in the first paragraph of the Shema, we talk about the importance of how we should post on our, or place on our arms and in between our eyes uh, the lessons of the Shema, and we should put on our doorposts the, the lessons of the Shema, which obviously there's much more to it than that, but it, it sounds a little bit like Inception, and if, for those who haven't seen Inception, it's basically something that rolls into something else that rolls into ad infinitum, basically. Uh, that that way won't ruin it, so it's not a spoiler in any way. Um, but so so we're teaching our children about teaching our children on the door. Walk us through what this what the point of this is. Why do we post what we're supposed to be teaching about? So often when we talk about Shema, the focus is on the idea that it's really that first line that sets us up. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, right? Hero Israel, Hashem is our God, Hashem is a singular entity. And then it goes on in the second paragraph to say, and you should teach this to your children. The third paragraph, which is not found in this week's parsha, right? Uh, the Vahaya Im Shamoa, sometimes referred to as the second paragraph. Vahaya Im Shamoa talks about, and if you do the things you're supposed to do, there will be rain and there will be crops and you will uh, be successful in, in the world. Um, and then the third one talks about tzitzit and the idea of having tzitzit as a reminder. And one of the things that the Torah often does is it creates what's called an envelope effect. It talks about A, it goes to B, and then it talks back about A. And so if we look at this idea of tefillin, and we look at this idea of mezuzah, right, it specifically tells us, and they should be for a sign, for a reminder. And so this idea of the tefillin and of the mezuzah, posting them in our house, tying them to our hands, I want to argue, is very similar to the idea of tzitzit, that they are supposed to be a reminder of what we are supposed to do. The tzitzit remind us of the mitzvot, the, the shema, and specifically the tefillin, and the mezuzah are supposed to remind us that we are supposed to teach these mitzvot. They are not something that are just for us, that we keep them for ourselves, they are something we are supposed to teach to our children and share with others. Avi, we have our first paragraph of the Shema in this week's Parsha, and there's a beautiful piece to it that says, you shall educate your, your children. And... While, while it also gives us the exact thing of what we're supposed to say to our children, which is helpful, except we know that Jewish education is so much more than just, so God took us out of Egypt, and so we have to be uh, beholden and, and daven to Hashem, and so on and so forth. Obviously, there's more of that because the whole Torah is more than one sentence. So many of us, don't necessarily know enough to feel like we can adequately 
provide ourselves, our children, with a Jewish education. And yes, while we do provide them the opportunity to have a Jewish education, the commandment is very clear. It says you shall educate your children. So help us with that one, because for those of us who perhaps just have the, the means and maybe not the knowledge, they might feel as if they don't know what to, what to do for this. So the Gemara in Kedushin actually talks about the responsibilities that a parent has to their son. And it talks about five things that the parent is required to do for their child. And they include giving them a brit milah and helping them learn a trade and teaching them to swim and helping them get married and teaching them Torah. And it specifically brings up, well, what if the, if the child or if the, what if the parent doesn't know enough to teach the child? And it says, then you should hire him a Rebbe for young children. And when they get older, you should hire him a Rebbe for older students. And it says, well, what if there's not enough money for both the father to learn and for the child to learn? It says, well, then the father should learn and teach his child. Oh, but what if the child is a better student than the father? Then they should pay for the child to learn, and then the child will teach the parents. That's one component, right? The actual handing off of the academic material to a teacher. But I think there's a second piece, and that is something that we talk a lot about in education, and that is partnership. Partnership with families. Because what we know is that students spend the most amount of time children spend the most amount of time at school and at home. And therefore, the two biggest influences on them are the people they see at school, meaning their teachers and their friends, and their parents. And thus, a lot of what parents do is taken on by the child. So, the parent doesn't have to know a tremendous amount to say, we're going to have Shabbat dinner. Whether I can say Kiddush or you can say Kiddush, we're going to have Shabbat dinner. The parent is setting that tone. The parent is setting that mode and saying, these are the things that are normal in our house. These are the things that we do in our house. right? And if it's not Shabbat, maybe it's Tikkun Olam. We're going to go out and we're going to help somebody else today. We're going to give up some of our time on Sunday where we could do something else that's fun. We could be playing video games. We could go into the beach. And instead, we're going to go pack food at a homeless shelter. Or we're going to go work with uh, cleaning out cages at the animal shelter. And I think that that, too, is an important way that parents educate their children that this is what we do in our family. This is what's important in our family. And the final piece, again, going back to that partnering, is the idea of when kids come home and you ask them, so what did you learn today? Wow, that's important. That sounds really interesting. Did you do your homework? 
these are all pieces where the parent is reinforcing the quality of the education, the importance of the education, and allows students and children to recognize that this is something of value to the parent. I just have to say, Avi, that was a beautiful answer. And I love the fact that the question of what can someone who is not learned teach to their children, your answer was quoted from Gomorrah. So it seems like one of the overarching themes that comes from Parshat Ve'echanan is towards the very end, in, in really the, the seventh Aliyah, where we have a statement of basically, we are the chosen people, but there are seven nations greater and mightier than us, which is not very inspiring if you want to make someone think that they can defeat and they can take over and they can hold and, and steadfastly be stronger. Because, really, if that can happen, then wouldn't we be greater and mightier? And so, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about how is that... What does that mean? What does it mean to be God's chosen people? Because this back and forth and exile and return and everybody stronger than us doesn't really inspire much hope. So I'd like to argue that the idea of being bigger, stronger, and that that equals better is a very modern, very American idea. Right? Well, wait, but... It says greater. Okay. Bigger as in either number or bigger as in larger than, right? Individuals well, being larger than. Greater could also be, you know. So greater. I think you're I think you're you're looking at the translation. If we look at the word in Hebrew Rabim. Rabim, right? Greater. It's talking about greater in number. Right? More more numerous. And certainly when you're talking about having an, a fight, right, or having some sort of conflict, numbers are important, right? The number of, of people in your army compared to the number of people in somebody else's army can be an important factor. Uh, if we look at the Civil War, for instance, part of the reason that Grant won and that the North was victorious was that they were able to throw more people at the problem than the South was. However, I don't think that when Hashem tells us that we are the chosen people, that is the piece that Hashem is talking about. Chosenness is, is not you're my favorite. Chosenness, from a Torah perspective, is really about saying, I am giving you responsibilities and therefore you have a duty to uphold those responsibilities right we like to use the term mitzvah and unfortunately people often translate mitzvah as good deed but mitzvah really comes from the word mitzuveh 
to be commanded. We are given 613 commandments in the Torah that we are obligated to do, that we are required to do. And while no individual can do all 613, there is the obligation to do the ones that each individual is capable of and for us to do as many as possible as a communal entity and as a people. And so this idea of being God's chosen people isn't about, hey, we're God's favorites and so nothing bad can happen to us and we're never going to get taken over and we'll always be the most numerous and we'll be strong and we'll be big. No. It's about having responsibility and being a model, being a light unto the nations. And sometimes what we find is that that's not an easy thing. We see over and over again that the prophets are often derided. They're often put down. They're often excommunicated and even kicked out of their cities. And sometimes that has happened to the Jewish people as well. Being a positive role model, being the voice of morality, isn't always popular. And so Jews over time have been derided for it, have been... Uh, uh, exiled for it and yet it is our our mission our mission as God's chosen people is to be a light unto other nations to fulfill our mitzvot and to try to live in a manner that allows us to be role models to the other nations of the world So this is the week after Teshuvah, and in this week's Parsha, we learned about how to follow Hashem's commandments, how to teach them to our children, and how to ensure that we continue on as a people by not intermarrying and by continuing on with our traditions. And a big part of our traditions are Ahavat, Israel and Ahavat Olam, how to love all. And the antithesis would be the Sinat Chinam, which we are trying to avoid. And so, how can we work on the small and community levels to perpetuate Ahavat Israel, Ahavat Olam, and not encourage Sinat So we want to encourage love of every person and love of Israel and remove needless hatred. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.